I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy myself. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club Podcast. With me, as always, is that five-foot bearded necromancer, Jeff Goad. Hey, everyone. And this week, we're very excited to have special guest Evie Lockhart, uh, p- publisher of Violent Media, which works include uh, The Unfortunate Circumstance of Dame Margaret Pearl, Smile With Us Friend, and others. Uh, she recently had a Kickstarter with Melsonian Arts Council, called Very Pretty Paleozoic Pals, and also has a module called The Ruinous Palace of the Metagorgos with In Search of Games. Hello, Evie. Hi, how are y'all doing today? Very glad to have you here. We're doing great. How how is it in your neck of the woods right now? Um, I'm in um, Arizona, so currently rather warm for it to be uh, not quite noon yet here. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Okay, so Evie, we'd like to ask all our guests sort of their secret origin story in gaming. What can you tell us? Well, um, my introduction to gaming was actually um, really through um, like MUDs, uh, the early 90s. Like, uh, well, I guess it was more mid and late 90s when I was getting into it. Text-based role-playing uh, games that were definitely influenced by Dungeons & Dragons. I found those in middle school um, and then found uh, D&D in high school, uh, second edition. And uh, yeah, and latched onto that really, really hard for a long time. Mm-hmm. And I mean, for better or worse, I think you're sort of considered sort of OSR adjacent. Um, how did you fair. sort of approach, uh, approach sort of the older style of gaming? Was it second edition and then something more modern, or did you go backwards after second edition relatively early? Sort of. Um, after after second edition, I did a lot of my own. Um, looking back, rather embarrassing game designs and kind of exclusively ran uh, stuff that I had made up entirely myself, just just with local friends and things. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I'd played riffs um, and a few other things, but then a friend of mine uh, got into uh, Lamination, Lamentations of the Flame Princess, mm-hmm. and that was really, and he ran a game of that, and I deeply enjoyed the, um, the, the foreboding violence and um, uh, just a uh, yeah, no, it was it was a uh, it made being in a dungeon feel as tense and taut as it should. Second edition mm-hmm. was a kind of deadly system, but there are a lot of breaks that you could do, especially if you knew how to game it. There, mm-hmm. There's nothing you can do if you if you've made a poor decision and limitations of that right. kind of uh, <laughs> that kind of set my brain off, and then I started right. exploring more in right. that headspace. Yeah, starting with the decision to actually enter the dungeon in the first place, which is yeah, the- <laughs> yeah, that's the first thing. If you if you can, just set it on fire and maybe sift through later. You know, <laughs> your first mistake was rolling up that character. That's right. absolutely <laughs> certain, and uh, and that is a it's a delicious precipice to stay on at least i enjoy it (laughs) so so it sounds like you were into fantasy at a fairly young age were you aware of appendix n uh as a concept or did that come much later or or is it still something new to you much much later um when i uh yeah when i found lamentations and started looking at uh, more of the older games and looked at bx itself and um yeah and once you're in those circles the the words appending in appendix n will will uh, pop out at you and then that's pretty googleable after that 
Right, right. Had you had you read any of the writers who were involved in Appendix or listed in Appendix N prior to that, or is it something that you've been doing sort of more recently? Um, a little more recently, especially for more of the weird fiction, like like Tolkien and um, things like that. But yeah, mostly it was because of the existence of uh, Appendix N and my curiosity as to the uh, the roots of where some of the, uh, the the tropes I grew up with came from. Mm-hmm. That that kind of led me to actually explore it and start reading, uh, you know, Elric and uh, and uh, more things like that and Howard and a lot more Lovecraft and mm-hmm. yeah. Were there any sort of? Uh, I mean, I guess we'll be talking about a specific work today, but was there any like big surprises for you in that process of discovering the writers, rediscovering? Um, I kind of. Uh, Oh, I'm trying to remember his name. I think it's Algernon Blackwood, but um, it, it wasn't. It was came in a. Uh, it just I, I was looking like as I've, I've been. Uh, I was looking for the cheapest possible collection of like weird fiction, mm-hmm. and a lot of it happened to be uh, that particular writer, and that was all kind of nebulously around Appendix N sort of stuff that was on there that really intrigued me, and um, just like the straightforward. Um, like casual conversational violence of the way that uh, that particular writer wrote uh that that definitely was uh it was uh disconcerting and refreshing all at the same time all right well there's plenty of um i don't know if we call it conversational violence but definitely in this week's today's work it's it's unique in that regard so yeah definitely <laughs> so uh this week we're reading uh clark ashton smith's poseidonist which was part of the ballantine adult fantasy series um i assume jeff that you and i have the same copy here which is yes yes right? we're both working with the 1973 ballantine adult fiction paperback with Ooh. this uh gersavio gallardo cover yep yep um, it's this painting on. of um, right. volcanoes exploding and uh, Greek pillars floating into the sea. That right. is quite pretty. I bought <laughs> the uh, cheapest version I could find online in an ebook that wasn't sold by Amazon. So that was the route <laughs> I went. <laughs> there you go. Right. Now, Evie, did your ebook include the non Poseidonist stories that were included in this paperback? Um, I'm not sure there were. Um, I think five or six um, different shorts, a couple of, of them were kind of connected. Uh, so it was hard to separate those out. Um, and uh, two versions of the same poem was uh, what was included in the, in, the, in the copy I got a hold of. Got it. Gotcha. So Hoy, earlier when we had the patron book club, uh, Matt Richards, I think, used the same ebook. Mm-hmm. So he, um, he and Evie have both just read the collections that are listed under the Poseidonist section. Right, right. There's a couple... Um, so uh, Clark Ashton Smith had a lot of sort of sort of semi settings and he had a couple of what he maybe only mm-hmm. wrote one or two stories for. So there's a, f- a few more that um, I guess we won't uh, push as much, which were in <laughs> other settings that were sort of loosely connected uh, thematically gotcha. that he put in here as well. Um, so uh, and then some poems and the like. So, uh, Jeff, do we have a high Gaxian word of the week? Well, I'm glad you asked because we sure do. Our Hygaxian word of this week is adumbrate or adumbrate. So it says adumbrate, but actually in the text, it comes up as adumbration. Mm -hmm. And the reason I picked this word is it shows up three times in one short story, all within a few pages of one another. And the first time we encounter it, it says in robes of ocean purple, we paced among the windy trees with their blown crooked shadows. And there, following us as we went to and fro, I saw the blue shadow of Ivectes and my own shadow on the marble, and between them, an adumbration that was not wrought by any of the cedars. 
and an adumbration is a faint image or resemblance as in an outline or a sketch. There you go. This is from so the, that's uh, our Hygaxian word of the day. Right. Yeah, that was in the double shadow. That is delicious. And um, <laughs> yeah, and I'd actually read that uh, uh, a comparison just in a quick uh Clark Ashton Smith Wikipedia read through a comparison to Charles Algernon Swinburne, who was absolutely my favorite poet of all time. And that is a very Swinburne type word. And um, almost all the words he chooses would, would fit perfectly into like um, (laughs) poems and songs. Uh, Right. Right. What I would imagine Clark Ashton Smith must've read Swinburne, right? Because he was, you know, uh, primarily a poet first before he became a, a fiction writer. Right. Yes. So, what, uh, Evie, do you have a word, or uh, we're going to settle with Adam Brate for uh, today? So. No, that, that's a delightful word. Um, <laughs> I will say my favorite, my, most of my, my favorite weird words tend to come more, um, wind up being either extremely antique like that, or wind up being very scientific and very particular, like magnetotactic is one of my favorite words, <laughs> which means it's the movement of microbials in response to magnetic fields, as opposed oh, to go. like phototaxis, but yeah. But magnetotactic, I like that word so much. I I managed to write a science poem and fit it in there. Right. So yeah. Anyway, <laughs> the other word that showed up a lot, which I have did not get a chance to look up, was marmorian, which I think has to do with marble or something like that. But uh, mm. well, I'll look it up. Someone will tell me that I'm wrong. So that'll that's that's what we're here for. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, originally, I was going to have perdurable be the word because I thought that that word yeah. was cool. But then once we got to that story and adumbration right. showed up three times right. in like five pages, I'm like, okay, clearly right. the text is speaking to me right saying that adumbration needs to be our right. word yeah the other one that came up for a fair amount was involtuation which i guess is basically like incantation again from context only because i i was lazy and look it up. yeah that's uh <laughs> i mean that's what all those pieces ought to spell out of how to spell out when you right. yeah when you break it down right right so um moving over to the library let's uh talk about the stories um is there a story that you want to talk about first or you want to look talk about the overall uh sort of atmosphere of Poseidonus? I mean, as pertains to as pertains to gaming, the atmosphere is a, is a huge part of what what clearly came through. So uh, yeah, it seems like a natural place to start. Okay, so um, it seems that you are also known for sort of dark and quirk. Um, so it seems <laughs> like right in your uh, right in your wheelhouse in many ways, right? Was there Absolutely. something that really jumped out at you in a particular story or um, the overall feel of, of the uh, basically the uh, the wizard whose name I don't quite remember and can't pronounce the matter. The, the the one from the first two stories uh, um, Mal- Malgris Malgris yeah yeah um, that his his whole abode um, the, the way that that for the way that that foreboding builds like I can I can see echoes of that and scenes I remember Tracy Hickman writing and fucking um, Dragonlance and all sorts of things like outside that creepy black tower he, that's clearly cribbed straight from from that story cypresses and everything undead right. servants like right, all of right. it. Yeah, so that that definitely jumped out at me, and right. more than anything, just the the use of language, the fact that he paid a great deal of attention to um, the rhythm of his prose, um, and um, that's I think that's a huge part of the reason that the vocabulary is so vast and broad. It's because those uh, those uh, Greek words um, tend to those uh, those uh, especially the the more Greek than Latinate tend to. Um, create sort of a running cadence when, when you're pronouncing them in English that can really speed things up. And mm-hmm. then, yeah, it was just a, a lot of uh, poetry patterns I noticed because right, right. I've majored in literature. So. Right. I mean, Latin, yeah, you're right. I think Latin seems to lend itself more to sort of like inscriptions. It's a little bit more like 
concrete, whereas absolutely grief seems to sort of flow a little bit it, in a it's, certain way. It's almost um, a classicist. I was talking to uh, Jeff Russell a long time ago on G Plus had had mentioned that they're almost onomatopoeic. That mm. most Greek words are uh, they they have an element of uh, yeah. There's just there's there's a visceral uh, mouthfeel. If you can start reading some of these works out loud, I think you'll really appreciate the the rhythm that comes through. Right, right, and that that was definitely one of my English teachers really said you cannot read a you cannot read a poem without a reading the actual title of the poem and mm. reading it all out loud without you know to understand it. You know, um, absolutely. So I think that's definitely something there, and and, and clearly again because. You know, um, Clark Ashton Smith's first love was poetry, and that it was always going to be, you know, the sort of the bedrock on which he was building everything. Absolutely. So, so Jeff, what do you think of this collection? I had a lot of fun, specifically with the Poseidonist stories. Um, I felt like once we got away from the Poseidonist stories and we were looking at some of the more kind of lust civilization tales, it got a lot spottier at that point. Mm-hmm. But when we're just looking at the stories that all three of us read, the Poseidon stories themselves, I thought that they were really strong, really entertaining. Uh, there was a real kind of air of sadness around mm-hmm. a lot of them. Um, there was also a lot of really effective blending of uh, fantasy and uh, and horror elements, mm-hmm. um, especially a lot of really interesting kind of body horror stuff going on. You know, kind of specifically when um, they go into Malgris's tower and they decide that they're going to like, you know, there's all these treasures around, but they decide to take the ring and then they're going to um, eat a little bit of his flesh so that they can like take his power. Um, <laughs> yeah. And this is something we chatted about in the patron book club, too. But um, but then like they get they get they get the curse. Yeah. So as they're like walking away, like their feet start to rot beneath them, <laughs> right. um, which was just like really just visceral and gross and amazing. Right. Yeah. Also, even with like the double shadow, I thought it was interesting how they're aware of the presence of the shadow. They see that the shadow is getting closer and closer. They know that the shadow is going to devour them or do something horrible to them. And there's nothing they can do about it, which feels a lot like it's kind of exploring the ideas of what it's like to be diagnosed with a terminal disease. Mm -hmm. This idea of like knowing that you are going to die, that there's nothing you can do to avoid this death and then tying this into like this like civilization that they all know is ending as well. There's just a lot of interesting kind of overlapping of those kinds of themes. Right, right. And it's interesting that you mentioned terminal disease because that's major theme of one of the stories that's in the sort of the looser stories, the Venus of a zombie. You know, when he gets cursed with that poison and he but doesn't take effect right away, um, yeah. which is available later on EV if you want to look at it on um, the sure. Clark Ashton Smith. Um, website where most of his stuff is uh, available in the public domain. I'm trying to remember what it's called, but we'll look it up later and let you know. So, but I also found that, um, sort of, so Clark Ashton Smith is considered sort of one of the, the weird tales, big three, along with, uh, Lovecraft and Robert E. Howard. And I think that another thing that Clark, all the, the big three have is a real understanding of landscape and how it sort of affects the story. And, you know, uh, Lovecraft was very much about the New England landscape. Yes. And, you know, and obviously Howard's is sort of the Dust Bowl of Texas. But what mm-hmm. um, Clark Ashton Smith had was sort of this Northern California, but also is often sort of very similar to the Mediterranean feel of that sort of both sun, but also wind and sea and all that. So I think he's very effective at sort of creating this an- feeling of antiquity, even though he's in sort of the newest part of our country, right? But because it still has that sort of very primal feeling, sort of like mythic Greece. In a way, 
Yeah, and California has a Mediterranean climate for large parts of the coast, so the, right. it's definitely something that would be directly experienced. But right. um, yeah, the, the way they, they situate their weirdness in um, e- even, uh, I guess, compared to some of the weirdness they look at, even something as beautiful as the uh, coast depicted there would be rather mundane compared to that. But situating weirdness in, in something so foundational as the rocks next to a cliff and mm-hmm. drawing those striking but very real and normal images against that creeping impossible shadow where there aren't literally are not words to describe the color of it right where where it's so fundamentally like situating that in the real um and and developing the physicality of their settings yeah that's something all three of those writers had a great deal of strength in so what about uh you had mentioned sort of uh you're talking about sort of violence in in dialogue or violence and and Clark Ashton Smith is considered usually the sort of more genteel of well, I mean Lovecraft certainly too, but is you know considered a fairly genteel soul in some ways, but there's a lot of sort of um dark energy here, right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> it's uh it's the slow dark energy of, of the the inevitability it's the inevitability of death creeping into absolutely every corner, whether it's their brains turning into that terrible gray mold, which is such a perfect corpse ridden image. <laughs> um and uh when uh how Chris uh, decided to deliver that uh delightful curse on them <laughs> uh, <laughs> that delightful rebound of their curse. <laughs> um yeah, it's uh, it's it's definitely that's powerful stuff. Right, I like that Malgris just chilling that in the chair. He's been like dead for ages, just but he's just chilling there. His beard's still growing. Yeah. He he had his last <laughs> fuck you prepped in advance, and that, that very <laughs> much that seemed like the uh, the perfect characterization. To be fair, like he, he's going out on his terms, even if he right. dies, you know, a decade early. Like that <laughs> that, that dude's doing it his way. There's right. no doubt. I also really dug how in a voyage to Sfafanoe or however you say that, mm-hmm. you know, like the whole premise of the story is you've got these two dudes who are like super, super brilliant, super powerful, have like all these resources mm-hmm. and they know that their civilization is coming to an end. Everybody is looking to them for answers. Like, how can we fix this? I'm like, don't worry, we're working on it. We're working on it. But what they're really working on is a spaceship out of here. Uh, <laughs> it's true. Which just seems so applicable to like so many things that are going on in contemporary Absolutely. politics. Absolutely. That's, <laughs> um, that's, uh, that's definitely some rich people bullshit going on right there. <laughs> yep, There's no yep. doubt about it. Um, which actually may, kind of ties into, um, and I, I thought I had about uh, Lovecraft and how that intersects, is like there's definitely huge eugenicist overtones and the way the Atlanteans are presented yeah. um, as being superior by right of blood. And like bloodlines being superior in the divine right, that, that's an old idea, but the way it's continually specifically referenced and the way the word race is used, which would have been a more common at, at the time, but I don't know. The, it seemed it seemed very specifically like th- those ideas weren't too far from his mind, right. which yeah. is definitively clear when you read lovecraft at all right right. and um yeah like uh there's a there's one lovecraft story that that's my favorite of his by a large martian but there's a or a large margin uh but uh there's a bit of dialogue there's dialogue in there um that is so unbelievably racist i will never recommend that book to anyone and i will never read it again even though it contains what i consider to be like some of his best work Mm -hmm. And and that kind of also may have been the book when I just stopped reading Lovecraft so much after that, because, woof, that that was that was difficult to take. (laughs) Right. I mean, there's always like a tap out point. And I could see for a lot of people that would be like, I would never recommend that anybody read like the horror at Red Hook or, uh, you know, the rats in the walls if they're not, you know, if they're not prepared to face that. Yeah. 
Yeah, what? certainly with with Lovecraft. I mean, he I feel like Lovecraft is a pretty special entity unto himself and that like I don't think he was just a product of his time. I think he was just a fucking dickhead with really shitty views of people oh, no even doubt. for his time. Zero uh, doubt. Oh yeah. Yeah. Clark Ashton Smith, I'm not sure is in the same category. I think Clark Ashton Smith, you can kind of put under the excuse of a person of his time more so than you can with somebody like Lovecraft. Um, but that like that eugenicist stuff you're talking about, like it, it was very much a part of um, the kind of colonial stories he was telling here. And yes. you especially see that in some of the tales that are outside of the Poseidonist adventure, uh, the Poseidonist adventure stories that we read. Because also in The Venus of a Zombie, that's a whole story about this dude who is obsessed with like the mysticism of Africa. And so he travels to Africa and meets these black African Amazons and like infiltrates their, their culture. Um, and they are so incredibly beautiful and mystical, these like stunning African women. But the reason why is they have, um, they have Roman blood in them. The Romans had come down and so had like given- Carthage, origin yeah. Yeah. oh my exactly. god exactly oh, so although they're not described as anything but like dark-skinned amazons some but they they have the features of athena and uh yeah you so gotta talk about an aqualine nose and shit like that, exactly. to, that make, yeah. to make sure that you that it right yeah that the black people can't actually own whatever beauty they right. have but yeah. but i still think on layered on top of that is clark Ashton smith's essential sense of irony right which is that's like, true which is like <laughs> he, he has very little sympathy for the absolutely horrible protagonists <laughs> right right this like, adventure like, yeah okay, yeah you're that, superior. that's evident at least right. right you're superior in all these like these guys have spaceships right and they like, like they could actually just leave Poseidonus and just go to another continent but like <laughs> no we're just gonna like, <laughs> like they, they didn't there's no reason at all to go to venus and, unless they just refuse to look right <laughs> like like i'm not going to look back Right, yeah. and they actually even when they're leaving Earth, stuff. they can look down and they can see like, oh, hey, there's more place. There's Poseidon is collapsing into the ocean. We, we guess there is more continents, but, and right. yeah, but like, but let, let's right. just keep going to Venus for no reason. <laughs> right. So it's definitely he's he's definitely like yeah, whatever your height, you scale, uh, you know, the worm will still turn. Is is there in Clark Ashton Smith, right? Oh, so definitely <laughs> the, the oblivion that waits for us all. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I think there's that level of, yeah, you know, there is, um, as you say, Jeff, stuff that is sort of embedded. I still like the Venus of a zombie story, though, because it, it did still indicate that whatever he thought, and as you said, um, Evie, that while the black Africans couldn't claim um, their own story 100%, he was in no intrinsic way, the, the narrator in that particular story was in no intrinsic way superior to what was going on there. Yeah. Um, he might have thought so, but he was in no intrinsic way. Um, yeah, like the the difference between the narrator's voice and the author's voice is something that definitely needs to be considered. Right, right. And then a couple of the other ones were were weirdly colonial, like the uh, the one where um, where they're in like the the Mongolian With the desert. giant in the root, uh, the giant in the root. That's the Mongolian desert one. But I really like the one where the guy actually um, gets it's it's a I think it was almost like a joke where he uh, it's the story is I think it's called hold on it's the um, and uh, pardon us, Evie, for talking about stories that weren't in your collection. Symposium no of the Gorgon. Um, <laughs> that one was so weird. <laughs> right? So this guy this guy sees the Gorgon in some kind of dream or past life. But he's well, no, no, the... he gets drunk. Right. He's just like, some, I think it's like some college student who gets drunk. And now suddenly he's like hanging out with Medusa and Perseus. Right. And then oh. he... 
<laughs> just chilling, huh? <laughs> he doesn't, just chilling. He doesn't quite look at directly at Medu- uh, when the, at the Medusa when Percy comes in and lops her head off, but uh, but he does see one of her eyes, and then Pegasus, which is just enough for him to kind of get a shiver, right? And then the Pegasus like sprouts out of her, you know, the, her bloody stump, and says he can take you wherever you want. And he goes, well, I want to go back to America. No, I'd be like put in a circus and you know in a zoo. So the Pegasus, I can drop you off anywhere else you want. So he goes, oh, let me go to the South Seas. And he goes to this island, meets a bunch of cannibals. They're all like really happy to see him. They give him a lot of food. Then he starts to realize that he's going to be a meal for them right and then they put him in a pot right with all these vegetables but since the gorgon zapped him he's kind of immune to the boiling water so he's just sitting in this pot like taking a bath in all these soup vegetables right and, and all and then all the the cannibals are like oh suddenly worshiping because he's not burning right? oh goodness and, and then the end of the story is literally him going you know um He's been christened, christened in their own tongue as the one who cannot be cooked. And, and, and the last line is he's sitting here on the side and he goes, I wish the Pegasus would, ter- would return. Oh, my goodness. There's, yeah. there's a lot to unpack there. There really is. Because then there's another one that um, – so there's a doctor who's at a parade. And it, the, the parade is happening because there's circus folk in town. So he's seeing all the, like, the zebras and elephants and he's seeing the, the bearded ladies – and uh, along comes this giant, but this giant is like proportioned like a normal person. He doesn't have like the like the mild deformities that come with gigant- gigantism. Uh, so the doctor is immediately like curious. He's like, "Huh, what is what's going on with this like perfectly proportioned, eight and a half foot tall man?" So he interviews him, and the man tells him the story of when he like stumbled across this like tribe of eight foot tall Amazon women with their like regular size men folk. And the reason why they were giant and like ran everything was because they had these roots that only the women were allowed to eat, which made them grow to gigantic proportions. Uh, so he like sneaks some and eats a bunch of it and he becomes gigantic. And then they all like beat him up and kick him out of there. Um, but the whole reason he wanted to do that was because he wanted to be strong enough to beat up the one woman, um, slap her around. Uh, so it's like, Right. Yeah, you really, really needed to feel superior, bud, huh? <laughs> yep, yep. Goodness. Um, so then he they kicked him off the mountain, and then he became circus right. folk. Right. But as to that point, this is definitely the, the, definitely the case of, uh, as you say, the narrative voice versus the author author's voice. And that was two, di- two different things in that case. And it was just like, okay, here's this guy. He just, like you know, thought he could come in, kind of do like a man who would be king kind of situation. <laughs> and like the women just sure. all grab him and like toss him off the cliff, basically. <laughs> yeah. And I forget who it was who was kind of talking about this quite a bit in the patron book club. I believe it was Jeremy Harper who was, but it was this idea that like, you know, there's there's the the, the work that Clark Ashton Smith did because he was a poet and like, immensely loved writing certain things. And then there was kind of his like paycheck work. You know, there's <laughs> like the the, the, I know that the pulps will publish this, so let me check these boxes and 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 send this this one particular manuscript out. And I think a lot of these kind of ones that Evie didn't get to have to read, <laughs> however <laughs> we want to frame that, um, I think may have fallen more into the, the 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 paycheck category, where I feel like the the Poseidonist stories themselves are probably closer to the kind of work that like. Clark Ashton Smith truly loved writing. I, I that, think I agree that with that. Seems, that seems yeah. it, it, it's pretty clear. You can't you the amount of effort that it takes to um, to write prose poetry that reads like prose, but is definitely poetic and pushing you in all the right directions and subtly influencing the way you're reading everything and reinforcing those ironies. Um, the 
that that's not something that you can you can half-ass. That's not something you can phone in. Like it, it was those clearly intense works of intense passion, and he right. really really wanted to describe those corpses, and I'm glad he did because it's ex- <laughs> it's exquisite beautifully done for something right. so absolutely wretched, which is right. one of my favorite contrasts. Right, right. So you should definitely, if you get the chance, go back to the Zerthik stories, which is all <laughs> more corpses than you can shake a stick at. Oh, those are incredible. <laughs> and there's, yeah, there's a there's a lot of mummy fucking. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, so that sounds sp- like Swinburne and uh, so and the his poem the leper. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, death and sex and right, right. adventure. I mean, he was and, definitely yeah. must be influenced by the decadence, right? The the uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, the like coming at the Swinburne influence, like the pre he was a pre Raphaelite poet. Um, like um, uh, Rossetti actually painted several of his poems. Um, so like. He, deeply infused in that um the middle of that uh mid-victorian absolute um decadence um was where swinborn came from and like those vocabulary and rhythms are very familiar right, um, right. when i was reading uh reading smith for sure right so jeff you were about to say yeah i was just going to bring up the story that we haven't really mentioned yet the last incantation where we've got mm-hmm. the old wizard who's got all this power in the world and he ends up having one of his demons bring back his childhood love, this woman named Nylissa. And when he does, Nylissa, you know, manifests in front of him. And he's like, this isn't the woman I was in love with. She was far more beautiful than this. Um, and basically the demon's like, nope, that's really her. You just, you know, you're, you've, you've, you've lost that kind of, that like youthful um, love of life or whatever it was that made you see all this uh, like project so much more onto her. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm not saying it very eloquently, but I, I thought that that story did a really fantastic job of kind of um, exploring these ideas of like the things that we lose when we lose kind of that connection with like our, the youthful way of viewing the world. Mm-hmm. I don't know. What did you guys think of that story? I'm, I, I like that one a lot. I, I enjoy hubris being smashed. Um, so that there was, there was definitely an element of that, but the um, very, the very real reality of um, it's not just the age, but like the type of life that he, had, that he had led from, from that point on from, from no longer being a youth had a huge influence on that. I mean, and b- no longer being a horny 15 year old was probably a large part <laughs> of it as well. There, okay. There's no doubt there, but um, like, the specific deathly necromantic way that he had uh, lived his life, but it it's inimical t- almost to, to love. Um, it's a, yeah, there, there's some choices once made can't be unmade. Right. Feelings right. going on there. And it's interesting to talk about in particular that story. Did he go down this dark route and then forget about her because he went down this dark route or did he, because she died, he went down this dark route, but then he still forgot about her. Like why, if this, if this was the great love of his life, why now 50 years later, Right or hundred years later, however much longer, because he's you yeah. know, uh, um, I, does he suddenly re- want to recall her? Right. I feel like yeah. the true love of his life is pretty clearly himself, and right. no, <laughs> no one else was ever going to be that. But um, <laughs> loving yourself for for hundreds of years, I imagine, gets lonely. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, he does have a serpent in the unicorn head to talk to when Th- he gets. That's the- true. <laughs> that's a that's a fairly rad conversationalist right there. There's no doubt. <laughs> <laughs> he also had a cyclops eye to talk to as well right. <laughs> so the um the inclusion of clark ashton smith in this project you know clark ashton smith is not officially in the appendix n um and many people are very surprised by that 
Um, and although he's not officially listed in the Appendix N, he is listed in the Mold Vase Sets list of inspirational authors. He's mentioned by John Eric Holmes, the editor of the Basic Set, as like some of the most influential authors, one of the most influential authors on, you know, the... The hobby at the time. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, Definitely. That's pretty um, clear from the way D&D Magic, um, the, uh, the trappings of it, at least, all the... the uh, the uh, yeah, just the the spell components when those were a thing, like the nature of them, that that sim- the poetic symbolism of those ingredients, and uh, the the wry humor. Yeah, you can definitely see where that came from, Smith. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a lot of stuff that it feels very D and D in here, like the the um, the tower where Malgris is. It's just like a, right there. That's a great premise right. for a D and D adventure. Right. It's like there's a wizard tower. We think he's dead. We're not really sure. Right. Um, go there and loot it. Right. I mean, that's a straight up lamentation adventure, right? It's a straight up. Oh, Flamantation. yeah. <laughs> the worst, worst idea was walking in the door. Yeah, that, that's <laughs> no, no doubt there. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. There's also one in one of the stories that's included uh, later in the book called the Invisible City. That also would be a very fun um, adventure. But basically, what happens is you've got these people who are like walking through the desert. And they bump into this city that's completely invisible that they can't see. Uh, And they like try to explore it by just like feeling around as though they were a blind person in the dark. Um, And then at some point they encounter this like domesticated animal. That's like also like an alien starfish. That's like vampiric and like starts like trying to kill them. Uh, But then they manage to shoot it off with a rifle. But then like the aliens who like have, who like run this place, find them and like decide that they're going to make them aliens like them. So they can finally start kind of seeing the city. Um, but anyway, so like it's, it, and, and then in the end, like the city like shoots off into space. Um, but that also just seems like that's a really like fun premise for a D and D adventure as well. Indeed. Indeed. And so they're exploring yeah. and like, they could have become gods with these other aliens. They're like, Nope, we're going back. <laughs> we're going to burn and wreck this whole place. <laughs> Um, but I guess the, the, the standard question that we have to ask maybe is why do we think that, um, Clark Ash and Smith, why, why would you be your take? Why Gary Gygax specifically didn't list? Was that an oversight or maybe not a, a matter of not liking Clark Ash and Smith stuff or, or, or approving of it? Or, is, uh, you know, cause so many other people were big fans of him. And so what would be your take on why maybe Clark Ash and Smith might not have been mentioned in the D, the DMG? Hmm. I'll put it out there. It's something I hadn't actually thought about. I, yeah. I, I, to be to be totally honest, I very rarely consider Gary Gygax's perspective on literally anything. <laughs> <laughs> to, to, to be fair to enough. be fair, so it, it's yeah. fairly it's new it's new conceptual territory. Um, <laughs> I, I can imagine being like he as as I understand it, um, Gygax was was uh, was a Catholic and, and relatively devout. I, I can imagine the. Um, the intense joy taken in the pagan trappings of that might have been off-putting, but it. Mm-hmm. But again, like uh, I, his perspective is fairly alien to mine. So, right, right, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think I, I think you have something close to that. More in the yeah. uh, uh, Dave Arneson camp than the Gygax camp myself. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, Gygax is not without humor, but I, I I noticed that most of his stuff is not particularly. It doesn't show a particular love of irony, which I think um, obviously is sort of the underlying tone for most of. Uh, 
Clark Ashes myths work. So. Definitely. Nat, that's definitely because, um, like, when he does do small little jokes, it tends to be like Fireball is the bat guano because and ro- rolling it in sulfur, and you, it's basically gunpowder. Right. Um, Sends the charcoal. Um, like, it, it's it's technical jokes like that, as I recall from most of yeah. the, the Guy Cax um, uh, influence that lasted through D&D, which seems very different to the way Smith approaches things. Mm hmm. So oh, absolutely. Since we're now, a, you know, more fir- firmly ensconced in the gaming, what what things do you leap out as sort of being particularly gameable, um, both or maybe having both uh, from the historic point of view, or things that you would like to steal for a game that you might run, Evie? Well, that that unbelievable, literally undescribable shadow monster was uh, particularly fabulous i've always liked creeping dooms um Mm -hmm. as a much more interesting way for characters to die um so that you i that's one of the reasons i tend to like um into the odd and troika so much um compared to like lamentations now um in in addition to the politics of the publisher um the uh is uh the characters are just durable enough for you to deeply experience regret when you've made a mistake. <laughs> you might be able to pull it back, but once you're once you're close to the end, you've you've had time for the rhythm to build. And uh, yeah, it's um that's a uh, yeah, and uh, yeah that's a uh, I I forgot exactly where <laughs> we even led into that. I got a little lost there in my own <laughs> in my own in my own Ooh, BS, which is not an uncommon thing for me. Well, I mean, I, I noticed you are actually working a lot in Troika right now. So, what is the major appeal with uh, working in Troika? Does it just give leave you a lot of mental overhead to think about all your other concerns and not be as concerned with system, or what's what's uh, well, the major? Well, the, the system itself is um, really really um intricately balanced in in a particularly interesting way but it's balanced to make sure that um despite being a 2d6 system things still remain unpredictable Mm -hmm. um and uh the uh the way the damage charts are set up and things like that i really appreciate the thought that dan put into it that i I can clearly see underneath his very wry clark action smith sort of a humor that he definitely applies into that and um it it's terribly easy to represent things in troika because they're abstracted intensely but in a way that feels real enough that i i can actually ground myself and ride in it mm-hmm. um like trying to run the pool the one time that I, that I tried that particular story game it's the way the dice work are so ungrounded in the reality of the world and clearly meant to um give you an ebb and flow of um e- exciting failure and exciting towards su- exciting success and back and forth um it's a that's a it, it, unlike that, Troika is is simple in a similar way, but but grounded in the physicality of the game world, which I think ties into a lot of uh, Smith, who I'm I'm almost positive Dan would would have read just judging by um, Dan's uh, very uh, ornate and archaic uh, word choice on mm-hmm. occasion. Mm-hmm. And I think you're you're exactly right um, that the certain groundness. I mean, for my appeal. Um, uh, we just talked about that earlier with the double shadow and, and just the general sense of landscape and that grounding in reality. Oh my goodness, and, yes. <laughs> and to me, it's important for when I'm running games that I have to believe in the world uh, before I can present it to the players. Um, and, uh, you know, it doesn't matter specifically what system, but certain systems will help us do that. Um, and for me, it might be OSE slash BX. Um, sure. But uh, whereas games that are sort of more abstracted, as you say, with dice pools, large dice pools, it's harder for me to wrap my my mind around a world at that point. 
Um, what's your feeling Definitely. on that? Jay? Yeah, I feel um, like I'm, I'm I'm in a Monster Heart games current Monster Hearts game currently, and um, I I absolutely love the, the premise and everything, but th- there's little bits of the system that great because no matter how I situate the fi- the fiction, if I happen to have to make a role that's modified by cold, it, it it I'm probably going to fail. Which the good thing would be I get experience from that, so you can morph your character like that. But um, yeah, it just it gets frustrating that the, uh, the the physical reality of the world around has very little influence on the dice, and like Clark Ashton Smith is fancy and poetical and nonsensical and literally undescribable as he as he gets that that grounding and mundaneness is so important. Like I have trouble writing villages that don't have an economy that makes some sort of broad sense to me. Like the most recent adventure I wrote for um, Broken Wilds, my my own personal system, it was based on um, turning aspen groves, which grow quickly, into potash, which sells for a lot of money. So that would make that's why there could be an isolated village on a mountaintop that worked well with the rest of the story I wanted. So I, I love rea- I love the I love grounding things, yeah. while they are also very ridiculous, which is why Troika, um, when I finally got around to it and. Overlook the fact that it wasn't, you know, a flat curve. That I was rolling two dice for a resolution. Once I once I finally got over that, I uh, it, it turned out to be one of the perfect systems for me. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Now, in the story, we we encounter a lot of demons being summoned for very specific, high level magic purposes. If you were looking to kind of have a game with that kind of a flavor in it, do you think that there's a system that you would be particularly drawn to for kind of demon summoning shenanigans? I, I tend to like to do it sort of the way uh, Smith presents it is to like um, the magic in my world, especially recently is based around finding actual tomes, which would have specific summoning instructions um, and uh, work, working off again, that, that physical groundedness of it. I want the, uh, the magic and all that weirdness to be inside. So um, in any, any, any uh, system, well, I mean, almost any system can support it because you can make either interesting random demons or you can write a BX demon that's got some very specific flavor and some very specific powers um, that you could, yeah, that you can, you can do all sorts of very simple things like, um, like just giving any demon unlimited illusions goes such a long way. Like even if they have two hit points, they can, they can absolutely wreck a party. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, those very specific demons for very specific things being the source of magic. It, again, it's, it's another one of those grounding things that, that really appeals to me. I mean, I think, um, yeah, I think to go back to, you know, the sort of common DCC phrase of quest for it, I like to have it be in world that you are attempting to accomplish anything. It's not a purely mechanical aspect of something. Right. Um, Absolutely. So um, but I think DCC is quite successful with that um, because that whole ethos is built into DCC, but then you have, a sort of graduated mechanism where things can succeed wildly or sort of moderately or fail, you know, anywhere along that spectrum, but it's not completely um, GM fiat. It's not completely narrative, right? This, this, uh, and this is an element of mechanization, which is sometimes needed because we, we're still playing a game. And so p- players should still have some sense of where they're situated in the world, right? Or at least... That's my yeah. in some case. Yeah. That's why I tend to try to write things more to be like a procedure to handle how to like um, answer some question that you couldn't pot like um, like unlimited illusions. You you can make up simple procedures as the rules, whereas like um, the illusion can last for a certain amount of time. The more senses you apply to it, like olfactory or um, be, or sight versus sound versus all those, the more that you um, the more that you apply, the less time you can have when any particular illusion. 
you, you, hmm. you could do that with any game. I, I tend to like mechanics that are um, more about the procedure and the way you do the question and answer between um, a GM and a player. Um, that the focus more on how that works rather than specific dice mechanics. Mm-hmm. Or if the dice mechanics are there, they'll be more like ro- rolling on a chart and unaffected by the rest of the system. Mm-hmm. Jeff, what, do, what are your thoughts on sort of summonings and uh, you know building around like, those kind of things? Um, I mean, I think what Evie's saying is 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 great. I, um, I I agree that you can fit it into really kind of any game system if you've got a game master and players with the with the right mindset who are on the same who are on the same page <clears throat> if they're not looking to if, if you don't have a bunch of power gamers if you've got a bunch of people who are actually interested in like telling an interesting story and want to engage with the setting and find out interesting ways to do that you can totally do that with any game system i do think some game systems do it better than others um like for example i would want probably a more like osr system uh, rather than like I, I like I know you could do it with something like Five E. I just don't think Five E is as easily built for something like this. Mm-hmm. Um, Not at all. It's got very different assumptions as to danger levels and things right. from from what I've yeah. read. Yeah. Right. Um, so a point that was made, um, I think, not that long ago by Matt Finch, you know, of Swords and Wizardry fame, which was actually really kind of interesting, is that he says that actually inelegant games, in other in other words, games that are not just hinging around a very elegant mechanic in some ways can be more successful at this because you can sort of pull out any subsystems and substitute other subsystems without breaking the overall game, right? So you could pull out, I mean, I happen to like Vancian Magic, but you could literally pull yeah. out the whole Vancian Magic system of D&D and plop in a different Magic system, but the game would still be D&D, right? It would just, yeah. Oh, right? absolutely. And there, uh, there are many, many examples points. of that. Right. Yeah, there, there are many examples of people doing BX with spell points and, and right. just uh, all, all sorts of uh, variants. Right. But or like even it? like Arnold K with his, uh, his bug Blog. collecting magic, which is, <laughs> God, that was a very fun play, a character class to play. <laughs> oh, <laughs> totally I don't know about this. Smells. Oh, it's a bug collector where they collect, where basically it's a weirdo that collects little bugs, kind of like Pokemon. And depending on what environment you're in, they give you different powers. And so you randomly get a new power every day, but it comes in the very physical form of a bug you found. <laughs> That's and, really cool. And it's, uh, yeah, it's written for his Glog system, which I, I never got that into, but I... His world, been, his world building is top notch. There, there's no right. doubt there. It, it's so delightful to read Arnold. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. Yeah. So yeah. So the the beauty of that again. So you could literally pull that out, pop that in. Um, whereas the appeal from some, sometimes from a design point of view is like, oh, I want this one unified mechanic that does everything. But then you're sort of locked in because everyone's going to appeal to that mechanic. Because if you try to do something else, like no, 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 but that's not the essential way that we do things in this game, right? Um, yeah. Totally. The moment that you write down that there is a skill called perception, people are going to want to do perception checks. Right. No doubt. I, I try to um, try to avoid that for sure, because the uh, the interesting part of the game to me is conversation between mm-hmm. the GM and the players. Is you're exploring an imaginary space. Like that's that's the game. The, the dice are secondary to that, and mostly just to to generate a more realistic feel. Because life is random. Is it just isn't. <laughs> Human life couldn't be more random. <laughs> like it's a, it's a, the nature of the beast, mm-hmm. <laughs> our quantum reality, and all that. Right. Now, um, basis on the basis of it, your view of it being very much a dialogue or, or multi-part dialogue between the players and the GM. Do you consider gaming a high trust exercise, or is it something that sort of is earned along the process of gaming? I mean, uh, there's you know? a. 
yeah, there's definitely a certain amount of trust involved, but mm-hmm. um, you can do a beer and pretzels game with people you just met at the bar where you're basically just kicking down doors and um, beating up skeletons. And like almost no one's going to object to that. And pretty much everybody that likes games will have a, a good time with a couple of beers in a game like that. Mm-hmm. Or, or you can do a game like Monster Hearts where setting up what what's on the table what's off the table what you can do is very important because um the themes that that game touches on are intense and get intensely personal mm-hmm. um so like um yeah um as long as you're keeping things to like undead and you don't have to you know murder goblins and take their things like beating right. up skeletons is pretty acceptable generally but right, once you right. bring in murdering goblins and taking their things well, it might be smarter even from an evil perspective to make the goblins your friends so that they can help you take other things. Right, right. Or you can you not be in a total asshole and you, you can improve their material conditions and maybe gain an ally. Right, right. So, like, there's different level of trust for, for different things, I, right, right. I guess, is the short version of that uh, diatribe. Right, right. And it's interesting that you mentioned undead because I think skeletons certainly no problem, but I've started to see more and more zombie stuff as intensely reactionary. It's like, oh, I just want to be able to actually kill people, but they're already dead, so it's not a problem. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you, you uh, want the you want the loose adventure, violent stuff, and right. like iron golems have really high HD, so you're fighting skeletons and zombies for a while. It's just kind right. of the way it works out. Right, right. Um, and I, you know, sort of bringing back to the Clark Dash Smith, I, I love his take on the undead because they're oh. not exactly i mean you know it's definitely incredibly morbid and you don't necessarily want to be hanging out but they're also sort of very funny in a way that they're not i mean they're both horrifying and funny in a way that you know you wouldn't think (laughs) shambling corpses would be normally so yeah like being able to see the absurdity of the shambling corpse and laugh at it is uh, being able to present that in a way where you kind of expect most people would read it and kind of smirk a little at least like that that's that's powerful writing the man, the man had an immense talent. Right. I love like all like the zombie valets in the double shadow. And- <laughs> yes, uh, yeah, where it's dead, where corpses are pouring your wine, and you're just right. like you get used to the smell of rot going with you, right? With and your like, pinot, you know, right? And the, the third, the third party, and their whole thing is the mummy, and the mummy's just standing there with his hands on fire, and yeah. <laughs> so we've been chatting a lot about kind of OSR and OSR adjacent games. And I'm curious if you wanted to do kind of a um, Clark Ashton Smith style, Poseidonist style game, and you had to choose between something more like Pathfinder or more like Dungeon World to do it in, uh, which path would you want to go down? Hoy? Um, hmm. Clark Ashton Smith. Uh, I would still, I mean, my, my inclinations are mathematical, but I would still probably go with Dungeon World. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I know Evie's answer. <laughs> yeah, it would, it would definitely <laughs> lean towards Dungeon World. Um, the <laughs> Yeah, I did not like... I, I'm not particularly fond of Pathfinder, as it turns out. I'm not out. a Pathfinder fan either. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I would definitely want Dungeon World for this as well. Anything that's sort of mechanistic does not work well with irony in my, in my you know, my sense of how you p- approach gaming. Mechanizing irony would be a difficult yeah. prospect. <laughs> and, and now it's the idea has been put in my brain. So thank you for that. Roll 3d6 irony. <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> I've definitely told people to take 1d8 irony damage before. Right, right. I mean, <laughs> with the exception no of like Call of Cthulhu, which I think is, you know, I mean, which is obviously oh, very mechanical yeah. in, a, in a sort of straightforward way. True. But it's just like sort of the granddaddy of all of these sort of, uh, you know, horror horror yet you know the humor in horror you know when you lose that last mm-hmm. standpoint um so it, it can be done um but something that is very like um uh fiddly i don't think works for Clark and smith and bringing up call of cthulhu makes me think more about how 
in the Poseidonist tales, usually our protagonists are dead by the end of the story. And do you think that you and and that's all also totally a Call of Cthulhu thing as well. Like you go into Call mm-hmm. of Cthulhu knowing by the end of the adventure you're going to be dead or insane most likely. Um, but I feel like I haven't really seen a lot of exploration of fantasy role playing where the expectation is you will be dead by the end. Not that it's a because like Lamentations and like the DCC final you expect a high mortality rate, but there's you, you almost never encounter that game where like the expectation is you're probably not going to get out of this period. Well, I mean, Tomb of Horrors. Yeah, <laughs> but, right. um, but but other but you work your way up to like Tomb of that, Horrors. Right. That, that's true. That's true. Yeah. And yeah. it's survivable if you work your way up, or if you're yeah. particularly smart. You, right, you right. can. You, there's a lot of workarounds in there if you're really paying attention, or if right. you read it beforehand, right. or if you cheat. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> right. che- cheating cheating uh, is pretty helpful in accomplishing right. goals, as it turns right. out. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think you make out an important point, right? Uh, one of the fundamental underpinnings of D and D is the idea of sort of progression in your character, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's antithetical to sort of the um, the sort of decay, the aura of decay that's built into Clark Ash and Smith. Um, mm-hmm. And but, as soon as you have a level system, you you kind of can't get away from that, right? Where I got away from it with a class I wrote. Actually, <laughs> it was <laughs> a, it was more. a really odd one. Um, it's a oh, it was I can't remember exactly. Basically, very sad robot. But the idea is that you start out with up to a hundred hit points. You net you you are from a chirally opposed universe. You can never regain or be repaired in any way, ever. Not <laughs> not at all. There is no progression. Your character gets weaker through time. The the inverse of how it goes. And you can trade some of those hit points for to roll randomly to get different robot things. Like when uh when I played my own character class because I, I wanted to be a sad robot and it was just a lot of fun. Um <laughs> I, I I wound up having a uh hollow projector where one nipple should be and uh, like a basically a Dremel tool arm. Where like imagine a future a retro future Dremel tool. That's what it is on the end of an arm. Like, yeah, and it was uh, it was really fun because my nihilistic robot was in the caves of chaos, uh, spreading nihilistic vision amongst the orc tribes. <laughs> and so, yeah, That's but the, yeah, but the idea was that it's the exact inverse, and um, you could be really reckless at first, and th- that that can be satisfying, and th- and I totally was, but like it just gets more and more ominous through time, and as that game went on, before I wound up having to drop out for scheduling, I got mm-hmm. more and more careful with that crazy character right right yeah what is the game system where you use the jenga uh, oh dread, dread. dread. That, that sounds very dread to me <laughs> yes yeah that was the, that was definitely the mood i was going for right right <laughs> but that's on my blog violent media um it's it was a it was a couple years ago but i haven't been putting out much on the blog lately so it, it shouldn't be much of a scroll down i don't think right right that's awesome. So, but you're right, Jeff. I think that there are games that have high lethality, but there are very few that I can think of other than uh, what you just mentioned, Evie, and then Call of Cthulhu as the games where you have sort of decay over time, right? And there's some progression in Call of Cthulhu, obviously. You can sort of hold, stave off, and you know, gain some more skill points, sort of regain some sanity, but you can never really surpass where you were at the start of the game. Yeah, um, sure. And any other game, as you mentioned, that is built on the idea of progression, especially a leveling system, makes it harder to sort of approach this kind of play. Or an improvable skill system of, of any kind, really. Right. Yeah. yeah. If there's a, improvements that can be made to a character sheet, it, it, that implication is there, pretty much. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. 
So we are starting to run out of time. Evie, is there anything about Poseidonus that you really wanted to chat about that we didn't quite get to? Um, let's see. Uh, I think we covered most of the bases, but um, just I wanted to kind of reiterate it's just the the joy of Malgris's tower, the 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 deep deep um, uh, symbolism of all of those objects and how the how you can kind of interpret the feel of those symbols as to what they probably do, and your lack of total knowledge of that making it so unbelievably foreboding. That's the the best kind of Dungeons and Dragons, honestly. Like the, their terrible foyer, the two terrible foyers into that tower are that's that's D and D at its heart and soul. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. well said. And Evie, is there anything that you're working on right now that you would like to plug? Um, yeah, I've got a, a Patreon for for a monthly Troika zine um, that I've gotten two issues um, out so far. One is now on my uh, itch store, available to the public to buy. Because the whole point is that um, if you want to subscribe to my Patreon, you get the you get the monthly zine for a little bit cheaper in a month before anybody else can get it. So yeah, that's the my my big project right now, and I'm always a uh, I've always got six or seven things going at the same time. That Very way, cool. if I burn out on one, I can just rotate right. and right and, and keep when busy. Is, when is Paleozoic dropping? Uh, I'm not sure. It's uh, I know the uh, illustrations. I believe have all been completed. Um, so we're it's um, editing and, and layout. So I, I don't have a, a more particular feel for that yet. And um, I was just mentioning earlier. So it's eldritchdark.com, which is where a lot of Clark Ashton Smith's fiction in poetry oh, can cool. be found. Um, because there's not really a good definitive collection of his work at the moment. There's that, you know, series from Nightshade, but sort of Mm -hmm. just being able to dip in and out, there's not a good definitive collection at the moment. So, and speaking of websites where you can find stuff, Evie, is there a good place people can go to find your work? Um, violentmedia.blogspot.com, uh, uh, I'm sorry, violentmediarpg.blogspot.com, um, and also violentmedia.itch.io is my, my web store. Um, if you want to, want to want to buy the polished pdfs but if you want the uh raw um three quarters finished thoughts that blog posts are made out of you you, you can always go to that and um <laughs> if you follow me on uh, facebook or um on twitter um which i should be relatively easy to find um i do occasionally um just give out free little free smaller games that i was interested in and just kind of put out a chip dar on ko-fi I, i'm around is the uh, short version of that i suppose there you go <laughs> Great. And Hoy, how can folks find us? Sure. Uh, if you uh, want to check out our, uh, send us a, some feedback to go to Appendix N Book Club at gmail.com. We're on Twitter at, at Appendix underscore N. Uh, if you like us, uh, please rate us and review us on your podcatcher of choice, such as iTunes or Google Play. It does help people find us. And Jeff, how about our Patreon? You can go to patreon.com slash appendix and book club and show us your support there. It is greatly appreciated. And our patrons are able to join us before the show for our patron book club. And today we had a nice full house. It was, um, I was there with Jeremy Harper, Christopher Murray, Joe Hoopman, Matt Richards, and Adam Styers. And we had a really fun conversation about Poseidonus. But I'd also love to give a quick couple of shout outs to a few of our other patrons. So thank you to Matt Richards, Kurt Hockenberry, Daniel Bishop, William Souter, Jared Logan, Eric Hicks, Noah Green, Mason Coffey, and Gerald Johnson. We really appreciate your support. Thank you guys so much. And let's see, our next couple of episodes. Episode 72 is going to be on Lee Brackett's The Best of Lee Brackett. And episode 73 will be on Philip Jose Farmer's Behind the Walls of Terra. 
So Evie, thank you so much for being on the show. So much fun having you on. Well, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it was an excellent conversation. All right. So, so much fun. See you in the stacks. Read on. All right. Peace out, Bean Sprouts. <laughs> the library is closed. <laughs>